Awesome. Well, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here. I want to welcome you to church this morning. Excited to encounter Jesus with you. Uh, last week, we took time to pray for our new church plant launching out to the Lake Cities area. Chatted with uh, Jeremy, the lead pastor there, briefly this week, and he was saying how encouraged they were after the first service. So thank you for praying uh, with us, and we're excited to see what God does in and through them. We, as a church family, are in a teaching series called Good With Money. Everybody say, good with money with me. Good with money. Say it again. Good with money. Why are we doing this? Because we all want to be good with money. Money is everywhere. It's in every part of our lives, and we all want to be good with money, but on whose terms and how do we do that? Those are big questions. And so we're looking at, together over the weeks of November, we're looking at one of the most nutrient-dense passages in all of Scripture on the way of Jesus and money. We're looking at a passage of Scripture from 1 Timothy chapter 6. So I want to encourage you to take out your Bibles, uh, whether that's the paper copy or you have it on your phone, but take out your Bible. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6. As we go through this chapter in these weeks of November, we're trying to get the truth of God's word about money in our heads. What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus and to be good with money? So we want truth to transform the way that we think. We want it to transform the way that we approach life. Secondly, we are sharing and saying a shared prayer together, our generosity liturgy. And our desire in doing that is that as we pray that we'd be opening up our hearts to the work of the Holy Spirit, that we would take the truths that we're learning about and let God plant them deep within our hearts to change us from the inside out. In January or February, in the early part of the year, we're going to be offering a workshop for anyone that would like practical help on how to be good with money with your hands. Practically, what does this look like in the day-to-day -day realities that we all face? So it's three-part learning experience, the truth of God's word here in these Sundays. We're gonna be praying the generosity liturgy together, let the spirit work it in our hearts, and we're gonna be learning how to live this out with our hands uh, at the turn of the year. So last week, we started with the foundation, good with money foundation number one, that every disciple should learn that God is a good provider. We saw in 1 Timothy 6 that God richly provides for us for our enjoyment. The revelation of God as a good provider fuels us to live with gratitude over greed, faith over fear, humility over haughtiness, and a purpose bigger than the size of our paycheck or portfolio. Such a powerful revelation that we all need. Foundation number two, which we are going to cover today, is that we are called to be good stewards. So every disciple is called not just to know that God is a good provider, but you and I have a responsibility. We have a stewardship. We are called to be good stewards. And this is so important because the allegiance of our stewardship directs the quality of our lives and the lives of our neighbors. That's the big idea today. If you're taking notes, you want to write that down, carry it with you. We are called to be good stewards because the allegiance of our stewardship directs the quality of our lives and the lives of our neighbors. So with that as a backdrop, let's jump in. First Timothy chapter six. I love the word of God. I know you do as well. It's exciting to dig into it together. 
we are going to pick up in verse 6, 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 6. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy for Timothy to be equipped to lead the church at Ephesus, and this is what he says. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, speaking to Timothy, so you could apply this to men and women, you, people of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And now the Apostle Paul goes into a little bit of a praise break before he comes back to uh, his topic. And we're going to go on that praise break with him. Who, in the sight of God, who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you, keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be might and honor forever. Amen. Amen. On that, come back from the praise break. And he says this in verse 17, command those who are rich in this world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command those to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Last week, we saw in verse 17 the potential that God's provision can bring in our lives, that it can bring us joy and fuel us to live lives of gratitude, of humility, faith, and purpose. And for us to be good with money, it starts with knowing God as a good provider, as this text says. But in this passage of scripture, Paul doesn't just stop with the truth of God's rich provision. He doesn't just focus on, hey, God is a great provider, now go in peace. No, he is incredibly realistic, incredibly candid about the dark side of money as well. Specifically, he notes that a love for money is the root of all kinds of evil. We see that highlighted in verse 6 through 10, and that's when we're going to spend the majority of our time today. So in your Bible, I want you to focus on verses 6 through 10. I found a helpful way to think about money is similar to that of fire. Fire is awesome in so many ways. It can keep your house warm. I keep waiting for the temperatures to drop a little more so that we can do a fire in the fireplace. It can keep your house warm in winter. It can be used to make amazing food. I imagine some of you have grilled this weekend. It can also be used to cleanse things that are infected. But in the wrong place, fire can be equally detrimental. Instead of keeping your house warm, it can burn your house down. Instead of cooking amazing food, it can char your dinner to a crisp. 
instead of being something that's cleansing, fire in the wrong ways can be fatal. Money is like that. In the right place, money can be a tool for joy, humility, faith, and purpose. And in the wrong place, it can be a brutal taskmaster. It can fuel pride and plunge us and us and others into ruin and destruction. And just as fire needs to be harnessed with wisdom, with the right motive and in the right boundaries, money's power needs to be harnessed with wisdom, right motive, and strategic boundaries. And that's what we see Paul talking about here today. He's talking about the dark side of money. He's talking about what happens when money is used and treated and valued in such ways without wisdom, without the right motive, without the right boundaries, and it brings destruction. Last week, we saw that for the Ephesians, that sin had energized the impulses of their city as it related to money. And they were a product of the culture that they were from. They were a product of the values and the backstory of the city of Ephesus. I went in depth last week on that. You might have felt like you came to a little bit of a history lecture. I'm sorry. I love that stuff. I nerded out. I hope you nerded out with me. Uh, but I wanted to paint the picture of how their background could influence their discipleship to Jesus. And how values that they grew up with that were normal to them might influence, might be imported into how they were viewing God. It seems like that's what Paul is hitting on there. And when we looked at them, it was easy to kind of see how their culture might influence their attitude toward money. When we look at our own selves and we think about what is influencing us, it gets a little bit harder to see. When I was in college, uh, there was one cafeteria that if you ate at it, it had a distinct smell to it. You didn't notice the smell going in. You didn't notice the smell while you ate. And if you were the one who had been in the cafeteria, you didn't notice the smell when you left. But everyone else would be like, oh, you ate lunch at cafeteria name today. And it didn't wear off. You had to go home. You had to shower. You had to change clothes. It's just like if you were there, you were marked with that scent. Everybody, anybody ever eaten in a place like that, right? And you're immune to it. You're, you're, you're unaware. You are not immune to it. I definitely carried that odor from being in there. But you're unaware, right? Because you're just like, I don't know. I just think this is the way that I smell. And everyone else is like, buddy, please go take a shower. Sometimes our cultural backgrounds are like that. It's familiar to us. We don't notice it because we're in it. We don't notice that there's an aroma that we're carrying. When we look at the Ephesians, we can see the aroma that they're carrying and then see, oh, I can see how Artemis, like we learned last week, is influencing your discipleship to Jesus. So what I wanted to do today was nerd out a little bit again on history. Instead of uh, Ephesus 2,000 years ago, I wanted to talk about America in the last 100 years. So pull out your cardigans, your pipes, your pocket protectors, your glasses, your tape, and we're going to go on a little historical journey for a few minutes. And the reason why I want to do this is because I want to raise an awareness in our lives. When we see them, we can see, oh man, these things are holding you back from what God has for you. And I want to raise an awareness for us, ask some questions for us about how might our culture be influencing our views related to money specifically the dark side of money, and then come back to God's word and hear what the Holy Spirit would say to the Ephesians 2,000 years ago and share with us today. So up until the early 1900s, historians identified America as having certain values when it came to money. 
It was frugality was a value. It was function was how we spent money. And you think about an agrarian society where people are primarily farmers, right? And you're thinking about, is this plow going to plow my field? I don't care if it's the new model. I don't care if it has all the bells and whistles. Is it going to plow my field? Function and because it was a survival mentality, it was about frugality. Those were our values. As the Industrial Revolution reorganized America, our values around money, just like where we live and the way we go about life, were reorganized. And as people began to make money off of factories and you began to be able to buy more things, companies did well. Coming out of World War I with the demand generated by the war, our economy was very strong. The demand from the war had helped build business, helped build economic strength. But at the end of the war, there was going to be less demand that the war had generated. And so businesses were trying to figure out how do we not stagnate without that increased demand? How do we not just kind of retreat in our profits? So they began to strategize. One gentleman by the name of Paul Mazur, who worked for the Lehman Brothers, uh, made this observation and put forth a plan that I think is so significant for you and I as disciples of Jesus living in America in 2021 to understand. He put it forth in, 19, in the 1920s, and this is what he said. He said, we must shift America from a needs culture to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire to want new things even before the old has been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. What they decided was they needed to go about an intentional plan to shift the cultural values of America related to money away from frugality and function and do you need this to awakening desire, knowing that our desires would outstrip our needs and those desires would fuel our economy. So how did they go about doing this? One way was they approached a change in marketing. Uh, a guy by the name of Edward Bernays, who was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, Freud, who did work on these subconscious desires that humans have, his nephew took his teaching and applied it to the area of marketing to tie into how do we market products not based on function or need, but how do we market them to awaken desire? And if you'll show the picture of the cars on your, I believe it's your right, uh, you can see the one that says, we promised and made good. This was a car advertisement in the early 1900s. The entire focus is on functionality. Their big selling point is the quality of the motor. On the right, uh, which I believe probably is your left, you see a very different way of advertising. And this was the work of Bernays. He tied the car not to function, but as a symbol of what it looked like to be a real man. And the reason that you and I associate cars with men and being a man, being interested in cars is because of this marketing campaign. So what you see in the second picture is not a focus on the motor 
how the car runs, but what you see are the three children perfectly dressed, playing on top of a car. Who does that? But I guess you needed them for the photo shoot. You see them in nature. You see his wife sprawled out, looking at him lovingly like he is the man. He's there reading his magazine and they're marketing Mercury, the man's car. And he tapped into something in the hearts of men. I have a desire for identity. I have a desire for that type. Uh, I want a girl to look at me that way. I want to have the perfect kids. Oh, this is the way you get that, is I get a car like that, okay? He, it wasn't just, uh, he wasn't just going after marketing to men. He also marketed to women. Cigarette companies uh, were wanting to increase their cigarette sales, but cigarettes were taboo amongst women. And in the 1920s, uh, it was socially unacceptable for women to be smoking cigarettes. But at the same time, in our nation, there was a movement towards women's equality and women's rights. And so Bernays, who was not a fan of cigarettes, in fact, he didn't want his wife to smoke, but he did another marketing campaign, this time targeted at women. And he marketed cigarettes, not based on their function, but marketed them as torches of freedom. And every time a woman lit a cigarette, it was a vote for equality of women. And he tapped into a desire in the human heart and said, the way that that is going to be fulfilled is through you spending your money on this cigarette or this car. He began to tie desires to purchases. Let's keep going. Uh, It wasn't just in the area of marketing. Businesses also adopted strategies to stimulate further desire and consumption. Uh, If you can put the picture of the Apple products up there, we all know and love Apple, or at least I imagine a lot of us do. Imagine you have one of their products in your pocket. But one of the strategies that Apple is a master of and companies began to do in the 1920s and on into the 50s and even to today is that of, um, I blanked on the term, hold on a second, is that of obsolescence, planned obsolescence. So they would design products to not last as long as they could, because if a product lasted as long as they could, if my iPhone really lasted as long as it could, Apple wouldn't make profits from that. They need me to come back in a few years and get the next one. So they would design products to have a less functional shelf life, so they run out sooner, and they would come out with new models each and every year without much change in the actual product, but so there would be this feeling of, ooh, I need that new model of iPhone. And it got real quiet in here right now because we're all feeling this one, right? You see all those products up there, and I was like, I think I might have had all of these, unfortunately. Um, And and so if you read in the news, you'll find Apple and others uh, under lawsuits related to this very thing of obsolescence, but they're doing it to stimulate desire that we might consume and consume and consume even more. In the 1950s, though United States made up just 6% of the world's population, 6% of the world was us, Americans consumed a third of all the world's goods and services. Wow, we made up 6% consumed a third of everything that the world consumed, found right here in us. 
And then there was a barrier that people ran into. Well, we can't consume more than what we have the resources to be able to buy. But wait, maybe we can. And the credit card was developed in the 1950s. And now you could buy not just based on what you had, but you could buy based on credit. The first credit card was the Diners Club credit card. And then a number of others spawned after that. And get this, in the 1950s, private debt in America doubled or increased from $104 billion at the start of the 1950s to get this, $263 billion at the end of the 1950s. Wow, time and a half, bringing in credit, we're spending more, we're having more debt. <clears throat> An economist by the name of Victor Lebo uh, said this, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life. That we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, hello Black Friday. That we seek our spiritual satisfaction and our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced, and discarded at an ever-increasing rate. So we adopted economic policies toward that end. Diane Kotu, who is the editor of the Harvard Business Journal, noted this about America's place in the world. She said this, Americans are not ashamed of amassing huge quantities of material things, a mindset that differentiates us from much of the rest of the world. Making it big and having it all are part and parcel of the American dream. Why do I share all that with us? When I learned this, it really deeply troubled me because what I realized is that I had been groomed and that we are groomed to spend our lives in service of consumption, to be stewards of mammon. One political scientist that I read called consumption the organizing power or organizing principle of the American life, that our lives are organized around consumption. Whew. And here, back to our text, Paul writes, and the Spirit working through him warns the Ephesians then and warns us today about the dark side of money, that when we live our lives wanting and desiring to be rich, to have more and better and faster and newer, that when we live that way, that it destroys our lives. When we spend our lives as stewards of money, instead of spending our lives as stewards of Christ, it brings destruction into our lives and into the lives of those around us. Look again at verse 6 through 10 in 1 Timothy chapter 6. In verse 9, he says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation. So it's going at the level of desire, the level of what are we longing for? He said, they fall into temptation and a trap and the many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and some people, eager for money, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Can y'all remember another character in the Bible who was known for their love of money and whose life ended in their own destruction? Judas, 
Judas the disciple was known as a lover of money, although you couldn't tell it at first. Think about for much of Judas's discipleship, he was there for the miracles. He was there for the teaching. He was following Jesus wherever Jesus went. And yet there was a desire within him, a love for money. John chapter 12 uh, says it like this, that one time Judas complained about the perfume being washed on Jesus' feet. And he said, well, this could have been spent on the poor. But John notes that Judas did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. Judas sold Jesus out for money. And Judas died. Scripture tells us uh, that he died with his body being burst open and his intestines being spilled out. And many believe that as Paul is writing here to Timothy, that Judas is on his mind. A powerful quote that I read about this this week is shockingly for quite a while, loving money and hating God can actually look like devotion to God. This is what's so unnerving about Judas. So it's powerful for us to consider not just the, uh, the awesome side of money and God is a good provider, but for also for us to be realistic as disciples of Jesus about the influences, the way that you and I have been groomed to desire more goods, to spend our lives as stewards of mammon instead of stewards of Christ. And when I talk about money as a pastor, I realize everyone leans back a little bit and you're like, oh, I don't know. Uh, I understand that. But what I want to point out to you is that when we talk about Jesus, the way of Jesus and money, we're not talking about God wanting something from you to your detriment. We're not talking about God grooming you for a purpose that is to your detriment. We're talking about Jesus wants something for you. And he wants something for you that is more than spending our lives in service of consumerism, chasing a paycheck, chasing the next iPhone. He has something more for us. And this is what Paul tells Timothy right after the warning around the dark side of money. He says this in verse 11. He says, but you, man of God, I want you to flee from all of that. And I want you to pursue a life marked by righteousness, by godliness, by faith, by love, by endurance and gentleness. I want you to pursue a life that fights the good fight of faith. I want you to take hold of the eternal life. Remember, eternal life is the abundant, rich, and full life that Jesus has for us in this life and in the age to come. He says, I want you to take hold of that to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So here, back to our big idea, what Paul wants to remind Timothy, for Timothy to remind the church, is that our allegiance, the allegiance of our stewardship, directs the quality of our lives and the lives of those around us. If we spend our lives in the allegiance under the stewardship of consumerism, do I think that we will literally pierce ourselves? Probably not. But do I think that we will end just like Judas, where we waste the life and we miss what God had for us because we were so consumed with a paycheck? Yes. And that's what Paul wants to warn them. 
Maybe they wouldn't be physically pierced, but they're piercing themselves with this desire when God is standing before them and say, I have a life of righteousness, of faith, of love, of peace, of gentleness. I have an abundant life that I want to invite you into, but you're going to have to let go of hungering and longing for and desiring after being rich and pursuing that as the means of life. So I want to bring this home here as we as we um, kind of land the plane. This is not something as a pastor that I am immune to, uh, and this is not something that we in Dallas are immune to, right? We just looked at Judas right there with with the people of God, and yet this is what's going on on the inside. And before Paul talks about principles related to stewardship, he comes after the heart. And I don't know that this is a lesson that we ever master. Say, I've got that. I'm good. And even if you might have heard this before, this is something that we come back to over and over and over again because we're called to be stewards, right? And the attitude of a steward is an attitude of the heart. When we moved to Dallas uh, in 2010, uh, we were coming to work with a church, but the church was not in a place where it could pay me. And so the agreement was, Hey, come work for the church, but we're not going to pay you, so figure that out. And we felt like that was the Lord, uh, and so we were in it. We were happy and joyful to do that. Um, and so I did several different entrepreneurial things in that season as a way to provide for my family and serve the church. Some of those things went well. Some of them didn't, but some of them were, were very financially lucrative. And we had been overseas in North Africa living on support, so we had not ever had much money, but for the first time, we had more than enough, and that was an amazing feeling as a, as a husband, as a father. I, I just enjoyed that. And as those entrepreneurial ventures, uh, the opportunities there increased, the church was also uh, growing at the same time, and I've been asked to come on in a full-time capacity with the church. If you don't know, uh, the church does a good job paying people, but you wouldn't get in this line of work if your goal was to make money, right? Uh, <clears throat> so I remember just being in this wrestle of what do I do? And a friend in the church, and this is why I love being a part of a charismatic church, and this is why I love practicing my faith in community with the people of God, is that you get to be around people who are trying to hear the Lord and trying to encourage you. I just find this is an environment where if you need the Lord to speak to you, get in a healthy church, get in a church that believes in and practices the gifts of the Spirit, and God will move through people and help you in ways that you couldn't have foreseen. And a person in the church uh, called me. They didn't know what was going on. They said, I had the weirdest dream last night about you, and I just felt like I was supposed to share it with you. I don't know all that it means. But in this dream, we were at the church, but you kept moving farther and farther and farther North, you are moving this way with a group of people that I was working with, and, and, and she said, I was confused because I thought, I didn't understand why you were moving further and further away because I knew that you were supposed to be here. And I don't know what that means for you, but I just wanted to share that with you. And I remember thinking about that dream and walking around the trails of East Richardson and just praying in the night, and the Lord 
convicting me of places where in my heart I had begun to desire riches more than I had begun to desire him. And the issue here, please, if you walk away with business versus church, that's not the issue. The issue is the issue of the heart. And for me, God spoke through a dream to a friend to highlight an aroma that was on me that I was unaware of. And I was like, okay, Lord, I signed up long ago to follow you. And if this stuff over here is not what you're calling me to, I'm in regardless of what that, that comes. That was a difficult decision. Fast forward a few months, and we're having a service like this. After the service, someone comes up to me who is their first, uh, it's their first time at church on Sunday, or at our church on Sunday. And detail left out. So I told the entrepreneurial stuff, the opportunity that was there, I told them no, that I, I was going to pass on that, and I was going to focus on what I believe the Lord was calling me to. So fast forward to the church service. Somebody stops me after the service. I'll be down by the front. Uh, if you're new, I'd love to meet you. They came up to me. You don't have to do this if you're new, but if you do have this, this is great. They said to me, hey, it's my first time at church. I know this is a little strange, uh, but you were in my dream last night. And I said, well, I'm a man of many dreams, but uh, that was a joke, guys. Uh, they said, you were in my dream. I was like, okay, tell me more. That doesn't happen to me very often, particularly from people I don't know. So the guy said, yeah, in this dream, you were... Uh, on an elevator in one of the high-rise buildings downtown. And you were in a suit, and you were going up the elevator, and, and you felt uncomfortable. There was something that was bothering you, but as the elevator went up more and more and more, you felt more and more comfortable. And then you walked into what I could tell was a, was a, uh, a situation where you were being given a promotion in this business that you were a part of. And in there, they're offering you a promotion, and you told them, no, that you could not accept the promotion and you left, and you went down, 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 down the elevator. And as you went down the elevator, your suit changed from what you had on to this blue shirt that looks like what you're wearing today. I was wearing an Antioch shirt that day. And they said, as you were going down and your shirt changed, I heard the Lord speak. And he said, well done, my good and faithful servant. That floored me because I was like, no one knows about the opportunity I turned down, but God does. And God sees our hearts and God works through his people to help us see both when we're going afield and we're drifting and also to encourage us of saying you're on the right path. Again, the big lesson here is not business versus the church. The big lesson is what's in our hearts. Just as Paul said, what's in our hearts? Are you desiring to be rich? If so, that's going to lead you on a drift away from the abundant rich life that Jesus has for you. And across our church, there's some of us here today that probably need the, the warning. That probably need the, hey, this aroma is on you. You've been influenced by this. And I want to awaken you to that today. The Holy Spirit wants to awaken you to that today. And for some of us, you probably need the encouragement today. Hey, well done, good and faithful servant of staying focused on Jesus and following me and not setting your heart on being rich with the things of this world, but setting your heart on being rich in faith and taking hold of the life that God has for you. And the goal of this is not a big bank account or a little bank account. The goal of this is faithfulness to Jesus. The goal of this is walking with him into 
the abundant, rich life that he has for you and for us. And it's important that we respond to our calling as good stewards because the stu- our stewardship and the allegiance of our stewardship, whether we're allegiant to Jesus or allegiant to the consumeristic culture around us, wherever we choose, that's gonna determine the quality and direction of your life and mine and our neighbor's. And I believe that God has for us that you and I, by virtue of you being here, would be ones that would say, Jesus, my allegiance with my finances is to you. The source of my hope is in you. And I am set on pursuing you. And whatever direction that may come, so be it. But I'm following you. And I want to invite you to stand because I believe the Holy Spirit wants to minister to us today. I believe the Holy Spirit wants to, as those friends did for me, uh, provide an opportunity for the Spirit to speak in ways that sometimes we don't even grasp with our minds. We're not always aware of the aroma that we're carrying or the state of our hearts. So as the worship team comes forward, what we're going to do is we're going to open our prayer and prophetic line, the ministry team, our staff and overseers, if you would be available to pray with people. And as we worship, if you realize, man, there is something in this for me. Maybe you're hearing it and you're like, I realize I have been drifting. We want to pray and unashamedly prophesy over you today and believe the spirit to work his word into our hearts. And maybe you're here today and you're like, you know what? I have been trying to follow Jesus, but I realize I'm tempted and I've made some difficult decisions, but I'm trying to stay faithful, but I feel so shaky. We want to pray and prophesy boldly over you today as well. So if I can get our ministry team to come forward. I'm going to pray the worship team is going to lead us in the song that's so fitting a response as we learn how to be good with money, learn how to know God is our good provider, learn how to be good stewards. And I want to invite you to come forward and let the spirit work in us in this time today. Jesus, we love you. Thank you that you are a good shepherd. Thank you that when it comes to the topic of money, you are not only a good provider, but you call us into good stewardship. Stewardship that leads to eternal, abundant, rich, and full life. Life as it's truly meant to be lived for us and for our world. And I pray, Lord, in this moment that you would highlight ways that we have become conditioned by our culture, groomed by our culture to spend our lives in stewardship of mammon. And I pray that you would open our eyes, Lord, that we might spend our lives in stewardship of you laying hold of that which is truly life. And I pray for every one of my friends that has sacrificed in the past, has resisted the pull of the enemy in this area. Lord, I pray that you would bring uh, incredible amounts of encouragement that wherever we sit today, Lord, that you might be our good shepherd, that you might be our good provider, and that you might lead us into being a people who are good stewards for our sake and the sake of the world around us. In Jesus' name. As the worship team leads, I want to invite you to come.